0: So to begin our conversation, what I'd love for us to start off with is a 60-second meditation. So I invite you to kind of get in a comfortable position, as you like, and just, you know, close your eyes. I invite you to close your eyes, and if that's not something you want to do, you can just keep your eyes open and place it on a, at a stationary point in front of you. And just begin to observe your inhales and your exhales. Relax your jaw. Relax your tongue. And trust that you're being held in safety in this sacred space right here. And now take a moment to set an intention for this workshop. Perhaps for mindful listening, listening to whatever is usually a growing edge for you on this topic of race. And opening your ideas to new, opening your hearts to new ideas compassionately as Dr. Borg said, the core of every enduring wisdom tradition in our world today. So take a moment to set that intention. And whenever you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes and come back to awareness of this beautiful sanctuary. Wonderful. So now, if you're a psychologist, you probably know this image very well on perspective by Robert Shepard. What if I tell you that these these two tabletop surfaces, which clearly look different, are exactly the same shape and size? And I use this device to really shake people's beliefs and what they think is true. Let me demonstrate that for you right now. So you see this table? For the skeptics, once again, table, table. No magic at all, no magic at all. And if you want to question this later, you're welcome to play it. As you wish. <laughs> so what's going on in this image? So your eyes see accurately that these two tables are different or the same. But when it goes up to the brain, it gets interpreted differently. But once I've demonstrated that these two table surfaces are same, even though they appear different to us, we now know better and we know that they're the same. So, social perception operates in much the same way. Two human beings can be doing exactly the same thing, but our knowledge about their race, their ethnicity, gender, culture, height, weight, what have you, leads us to see them as different people, as different actors. And those kinds of illusions, like this very illusion, are more powerful So, this image, these two images, depict people in the aftermath of Katrina, right, stranded in water. And this is how they were reported in the media. This young man walks in water having looted a grocery store, whereas those two residents found bread and soda. Notice the use of language. There could have been a neutral way of describing what all three of these individuals did in light of their very grave circumstances take right they took food now some journalists might some some of us may call these journalists as racist for me i define racism as dr king described it it is the belief in the intrinsic inferiority of people because of their color or ancestry It is what motivates a lot of hate groups, like the KKK, or the Nazis. But based on that definition, I don't believe that these journalists are racist or motivated by hate when they write this. However, I cannot deny that there is something that allows them to see these two human beings doing exactly the same thing, but to perceive and report it differently. A father and his son are in a car accident. The father dies at the scene, and the son, badly injured, is rushed to the hospital. In the operating room, the surgeon looks at the boy and says, I cannot operate on this boy. He is my son. How could this be? How could this be? So, if you haven't gotten this yet, if you're still confused, When I first read this, my mind thought it was a gay couple. That this son had two boys, two two fathers, before even thinking that the surgeon could have been a woman. And this is coming from the son of a female surgeon. (laughs) My mother has been a surgeon for 30 years. And this is because Try this again, Oop, click, oh good. We have these mental associations with surgeons, which in this paragraph is further aggravated by the number of male words, father, son, boy. And this is an example of unconscious mental associations. They can be positive or negative, but when they're negative, they become unconscious bias similar to the journalists who called the black survivor of Katrina a looter and the white ones finders. So, what is unconscious bias? Neuroscientists and social psychologists define unconscious bias as the unconscious attribution of certain qualities of to perceived members of a social group, also known as implicit bias. So, as human beings, we need categories to function. These categories are not only convenient, but essential in permitting us to go about our business every day, and to survive, just to get out there. For example, we need them to differentiate between food and not food, between a pet, a dog, or a wolf, or the smell of a fragrant flower versus a burning house, these are categories, right? They help us. But our mind's ability to character or categorize takes a deleterious turn when it strips our humanity for these categories to remain intact. So this comes true when women can't be surgeons. Uh oh, sorry. Women can't be surgeons. Short people can't be leaders. So it says that for every inch over five, six, a man adds $1,000 to his annual salary. And of course, you know, black people and people of color cannot just be finders of food in midst of tragedy. Somehow, they're at fault for just being who they are. So how does unconscious bias work? Oh my goodness, what's going on? Awesome. How does unconscious bias work? So unconscious bias is a mind bug. Just like these t- two table surfaces, which are exactly the same, but they look different to us. It is an ingrained habit of thought that leads to errors in how we perceive, remember, reason, and make decisions. It doesn't mean prejudice in the sense of open hostility, dislike, or disrespect, but a blind spot, something we're just unaware of. It is an automatic preference for men as surgeons, tall people as leaders, and white people as deserving empathy, or at least what we perceive as white people. Let me illustrate this with an example, if it'll let me. (laughs) Great. Um, So you watch a needle pierce someone's skin, like this beautiful woman up there. Do you feel this person's pain? Does it matter if the person's skin is white or black? So what happens generally is that if we see someone in pain, it triggers the same network in our brains that's activated when we're hurt. But people don't respond to pain of others equally. That's what scientists have found. And in various experiments, scientists have shown that when viewers saw white people receiving painful stimulus, they responded more dramatically than they did for black people. And these respondents weren't just white, they were all people. In other words, when people see lighter and whiter skin receive painful stimulus, it elicits greater brain activity in the viewer's brain than skin color that is darker. This is known as the racial empathy gap. However, the challenge is not just that people disregard the pain of darker skinned people, it is much greater. The challenge is that the pain is often not even felt. That is, somehow the humanity of these people is so different from the viewer that we can't even associate with them. A recent study showed that people, including medical personnel, assume that black people feel less pain than white people. So I can go on and on and on about this, but this is an established fact in leading neuroscience and social psychology. And being that as it is, what I want to go to is, what can we do about it? So the racial empathy gap raises two important questions for us, particularly for all of us who are good-intentioned, justice-loving, justice-wanting, and justice-seeking people in the world. Where does it come from? And why is it important in our world and in our spiritual and worship communities at large? So let's begin by addressing the latter question first. Why is it important? So, The racial empathy gap explains disparities in every social, economic, and political indicator in our nation. This is of course true for people of color, but most importantly, for those folks that are perceived as black. So I make this distinction because it is important for us to acknowledge that despite having a black president and almost 50 years since the passage of the Civil Rights Act, black folks remain at the bottom of most indicators of social prosperity on the top of most indicators for social misery. But it's not just black folks that are caught in that. It's also important to note the perception of blackness that captures a lot of non-African-descended folks in that same trap. Latinos, native people, Asians, and even white people who act black. So it's the illusion, like this tabletop, of blackness that really captures them. So in working with More and The Middle Project, my objective really is to make these facts and information known better for change agents. And in doing that work, I've realized how little people know about the horrific and increasing race-based disparities in our nation. So I'll share some of these with you. So one in two black and Latino children go to high-poverty schools compared to 7% of white children, or one in 15 white children. 25% of black children are being raised under the poverty line, which is about $23,000, and 80% of black children are being raised under the the 200% poverty line, which is $47,000 for a family of four. Okay. The median net worth of a black family is $5,600 compared to $113,000 for a white family. And on average, a black person receives a sentence that is 18 months longer than a white person for identical crimes. Identical crimes. And these disparities worsen when we add additional intersecting identities. For example, trans women of color make up 40% of all hate crimes that are perpetrated against LGBT and gay people. And less than a quarter of black and Latino trans people, children pretty much, graduate from high school. So these realities remain when we control for class. Research does not support the claim that it is class, not race. And I would challenge folks to investigate and reflect what is their source of discomfort in acknowledging this truth. With that said, where does the going to the first issue? Where does the, the racial empathy gap come from? For us to do something and become enablers of justice, we need to understand where it comes from, right? So, I've been obsessed with this quote recently. It's one of my favorite quotes now Mark Twain's I have been through some terrible things in my life, some of them actually happened. So, this quote resonates with me because something that happened to me recently. So, my family is Indian, you know, they immigrated here. And wherever I go, that's the first question I get asked. You know, people don't ask me how my day was, what I do for a living, you know, where I live. What are you? Where are you from? And they're really trying to place me in their cosmology of um, where I'm placed from, right? So they can tell me about their trip to India or their Indian neighbor, et cetera. Which is fine, at first I was a little frustrated, but I'm like, I'll play a game. I love to learn more about India. I wish I'd known more. So, it's great, I get all this free education. (laughs) But other than that, other than that, I've been quite lucky in my life, unlike a lot of my brothers of color. I have never been stopped and frisked, no special attention at airports, and no egregious experiences of racism of any kind, until three weeks ago. So, I went to my doctor's appointment, I arrived a little early, And the waiting room was kind of full, so I used the bathroom and I went outside to wait, because I knew my doctor would just come out and get me when the time was right. So he did come out and get me, and as I was walking to my appointment, a woman sitting in the waiting room says to me, in front of a lot of people, I want to speak to you. You seemed a little suspicious to me walking in, using the bathroom, and leaving. I was wondering who the strange man is. And there I am standing with my doctor, completely, I mean, frozen, right? Unanticipated, out of nowhere, where is this coming from? So my doctor was like, hey lady, that's my patient. He was waiting outside, back off. So, and I was paralyzed. And then the stories of the mind began, right? Police brutality, war and terror, Guantanamo Bay, Oak Creek, one after another. So these things are real, right? All of those things happen, and they happen oftentimes to people that look like me, but they haven't happened to me. <laughs> so for a second, I was like, oh my gosh, that's great. Personal and systemic disconnection, which offered, this quote offered some relief to me, but then I questioned, why did this woman think that I am suspicious and strange? And what prevented her from having any empathy for this Human being to say that out loud in front of other people. So, to explain the story, to explain why, I have another story. So, we human beings, right, same species, we're social animals. And we have always been obsessed with communicating. It's how we turn ideas into the glue that binds us together as tribes and societies. In oral traditions, An idea spreads from person to person. Um, Everybody briefly owns it, modifies it, and we can choose to pass it along our social networks or let it die. Ideas basically fight for survival, the survival of the fittest. And only the most compelling ideas survive and eventually thrive. And that's most of our stories, our faith traditions, right? They spread across continents, across nations, across tribes. Because the ideas were so compelling, and people adopted them, modified them, changed them. Christianity, Buddhism, Islam. But this changed in the era of European Scientific Revolution 400 years ago. So audiences, instead of remaining as participants in the spread of ideas, became consumers of ideas. Institutions and peoples with access to broadcast could guarantee attention, and basically created ideas to feed audiences. So, this included the printing press, governments, religious institutions, universities, big business, and it became survival of the richest and the powerful. So the idea of race has only a 300-year history. 300 years. Human beings have been mixing and intermixing for millennia. But never was color and external appearance a brand of servitude or inferiority. There were thousands of white slaves in colonial America. But they didn't even think of themselves as white. They were Scots, they were Irish, they were French, they were Huguenots, they were Catholics, they were Calvinists, right? But... Science was crafted to divide our complex and diverse humanity into four races to create hierarchies and to prescribe each race a moral, behavioral, and ethical characteristic that remains to this day. And our founding fathers were not immune to this idea. Whiteness was crafted by the gentried class to create a glue of this society to bind America as a tribe. And whiteness was defined by what it was not. So if you think for a moment, the vast majority of African-Americans, Latino people, and Native Americans today, have mixed European ancestry. Sometimes without consent, but oftentimes, through loving relationships of the ancestor, they they were willing to overcome and transcend those boundaries. But one drop of non-European blood made them non-white. Why? Because of the stories and myths that went along with being a person of color, those hierarchies that endure to this day. From 1790 to 1965, whiteness was a requirement to become an American citizen. So once this idea of race was created with stories of the inferiority of a class of people that are non-white human beings, this idea was fed to the larger population through emerging technology. At first, the, last, the first 200 years of our nation, through printing press, newspapers, magazines, conferences, summits, academic institutions, churches, and in the last century, through Hollywood, TV, and now social media. Professor Chun Hyun Kyung, from the Union uh, Seminary, talks about how the story of demonization leads to the dehumanization of human beings. And it was this dehumanization that justified and continues to justify unjust and inhumane policies and practices with eerie silence of the majority. And this is what the racial empathy gap is about. In the past, these policies were policies and practices of the Jim Crow you know, of lynchings for Japanese internment, Chinese exclusion, the native genocide, native dislocation, forced boarding schools, the bracero program, farm workers, and the continued debate on immigration. Last year, there were 3,200 children's books published in this country. Less than 93 portrayed black children out of 3,200. So where does this lead us? So you audiences are consumers of images and ideas that deem those who look like me as suspicious and strange. And we are fed to be scared to be around black men, for example. But like Mark Twain said, our minds go wild concocting stories about other people just by looking at them even though most of these things haven't occurred. And this continues to create and sustain the walls of separation between our common humanity. We now have scientific proof that human beings are 99.9% exactly the same living and breathing organism, and that people from different ethnic groups and different geographic regions are more similar biologically than people from the same group. So Jackie and I, We're more similar than we we look. (laughs) But the story of our difference remains intact, based on the superficial, and its consequences are tragic on our communities. So while we have changed some laws, these unconscious stories have yet to change. Just like these two table surfaces, our human bodies are exactly the same, but one is perceived more valuable than the other so much so that everyday people can't empathize with the pain experienced by darker-skinned people. Where two-thirds of Americans need to move neighborhoods for us to be fully integrated. Two-thirds. That's how hyper-segregated we are today. And even when we pray, meditate, and congregate for peace, justice, and love for all people in the world, we do so with people that look like us. 90% of all congregants and 90% of places of worship look like one another. Have a watch.
1: I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. I must admit, that I have gone through those moments.
0: Those moments when I was greatly disappointed with the church. We must face the fact that in America.
1: At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when we stand and sing and Christ has no east or west.
0: We stand at the most segregated hour in this nation.
1: This is tragic.
0: Nobody of honesty can overlook this. Now, I'm sure that if the church had taken a stronger stand all along,
1: we wouldn't have any of the problems that we have. Now, I'm not saying that society must sit down and wait on on a spiritually moribund church, as we've so often seen. If the people of God could just imagine it, I think that the opportunity of the future is to really go out and to transform American society. And where else is there a better place than in the institution? The institution that should preach brotherhood and make it a reality within its own body. The most segregated hour? Not on our watch.
0: So, as Dr. King said, our spiritual communities are the space for racial healing and acting for human justice outside this construct of race. This is especially true for our changing demographics as we move towards a nation with no racial majority. And this is what we're doing with Middle at Be More. So, I know that I've shared a lot of information And I'm sure there's percolating thoughts, ideas that are coming up. Oh, go back. So we'd love for you to actually take five minutes. Uh Uh-oh. Take five minutes to just reflect upon what you heard, the racial empathy gap, the story of us, the story of now, the story of self within that you know, take out your laptops, pen and paper, and I'll call out time in five minutes and pass it on to Jackie. Okay, thank you.
1: Ain't gonna let racism turn me around, oh, turn you around, turn you around. Ain't gonna let racism turn me around. I'm gonna keep on walking. Keep on talking, marching up to freedom land. Unlock, thank you so much for that. Thank you all. Good job. Open your notebooks and take out the 10 essential strategies to grow a multiracial, multicultural congregation. I'm going to invite you to feel free to either listen along or right along. I'm going to talk from page four and forward for a little bit. So you can make notes there or keep it clean. Help, help me before I get started to describe the place, the vision, the, the picture you have of a preferred reality where we are not talking about racism anymore. What, what is that in your language? Shout it out and I will repeat it back to you. What what is that that motivates you? What do you call it? Beloved community. Okay, great. Beloved community. What else? Wholeness. Wholeness. Great. Rest. Rest amen. <laughs> Rest, yeah. Integrity. Integrity. Oneness. Oneness. Great. Dialogue. Empathy and dialogue. Could. The goal. The goal. Amen. Yeah. Celebration. Insight. Great. Home. Home. Love that. The norm. norm. Great. Good. Security. Security? Good. Justice. Justice. The kingdom of God. Great. Connectedness. Okay. I think I think about that as the reign of God, the kingdom of God. I love all the language that we've used to kind of paint a picture of the place that we are striving for. Does anybody want to live in a world where color causes hurt? Does anybody want to live in a world where ethnicity causes the kind of experience that Anurag had, the kind of experience that all of us have had in this nation? Um, And, by the way, around the globe. What drives me to the work of racial reconciliation is um, two narratives. One, the narrative that I find in the scripture, um, this kind of sense of promise. I love the way Revelation 7:9 9 this, by the way, Revelation's a pretty scary, weird book. Um, <laughs> there's beasts and there's fire and there's like lots of ugly stuff. Um, thank God you don't have to use that book to preach. Uh, but the, but, the, but the vision John of Patmos have has got a lot of weird stuff in it, but it also has some really beautiful pictures. In Revelation 7-9, there's this picture of all of the tribes, all of ethnicities, all of God's people, all praising God in one voice. I love that picture. I love the pictures that show up in Revelation 21 where there's a city And so the whole sense of paradise has moved from being a garden to being a city. I like cities. I like New York. And it's a city, and it's a city with a river running through it. We know this picture. It shows up in culture, um, you know, in beautiful music. Uh, Carly Simon, let the river run. That's all about this beautiful picture. Uh, Stevie Wonder, you know, has a beautiful song about this picture where there's a city with a river running through it. And on either sides of the river are these trees. And these trees have leaves, and the leaves are for the healing of the people. That's so hot. I love that. That really gets me up in the morning. It really does. I love the sense of the prophet Isaiah has got these beautiful texts about where all of God's people are going to be experiencing something new. The old has passed away, and it has all become new. And the newness is this picture of a bold new creation where no one's got tears, and everyone is healed, and everybody has enough. That stuff really drives me. That narrative is one thing that compels me to work for racial reconciliation. But frankly, the other narrative that makes me work for racial reconciliation is where my personal story intersects the American story. And some of you have heard some of it, so forgive me for repeating, but my mom and dad literally climb out of the Jim Crow South and get on trains and buses and leave the Mississippi South to move to the North, where they can have freedom. They walk by schools designed for white children and go to the colored school. They drink. I drank at a colored-only water fountain. I, who am 55 years old, went to the courtroom in Ruleville, Mississippi, and drank out of a colored-only water fountain in my lifetime. I'm driven by my grandparents um, being oppressed by by white people. I'm driven by my seven-year-old experience of finding out that I was the N-word. I'm driven by Dr. King's assassination. I am driven by the um, election of a black man who can get harassed in the Senate building because he's a black man. And I am driven by the love I have for my white, blue-eyed, gray-haired husband and the world we live in, and how somehow that looks anathema to people for us to be together. Not often. And shockingly enough, it is often when we go outside of the country that John gets blow-by, by the way, racism for being with me. So last, two summers ago, when we went to Greece as part of my sabbatical, and we sat in a restaurant to eat, and I was getting open stares by Eastern European-looking people in Greece. Open stares, and John was getting the hostile, what's wrong with you, white man, for being with that black woman, that sent me into tears. So that we leave the restaurant, and I'm walking down the street crying, thinking, dude, I spent my vacation money to be treated like crap in in a foreign land. It was a really weird, horrible experience that got made right by another person. Uh, We were walking by a restaurant row type of place, and this Greek man was out on the street trying to call us in to eat. And then he says to me, Oh, Bella, you are so beautiful. I'm crying. My mascara is all over my face. He says, You look like my girlfriend when I was a student in New York. And he, <laughs> say more. <laughs> Look at you guys. You're thinking there's sex at the end of the story, don't you? No. Uh, he tells me that there's this beautiful woman that he dated when he was a teenager. And he loved her so much. And her, her brothers were protective of her and broke them up. And he says, it's too bad, isn't it? How even love isn't enough to pull us together. Even love isn't enough to pull us together. And he says, my people have work to do. And I say, my people have work to do. But We found solidarity in that moment. I'm driven by my story to make a commitment to work every day for racial reconciliation in my family, with my parents, with my man, in my house, but also in the world. What drives you? So I'm talking about commitment. Anurag and I want us to be thinking about what we can do to end racism. We have ambition. (laughs) 40 years from now, let's make it go away. We have to start with commitment. So, I'm going to invite you to take a second and just write on that paper what what drives you to commitment. We're just going to do that for about 40 seconds or so. Make yourself a couple of notes. You've heard me say it, and I'm going to say it again. Keep writing. Leaders tell compelling stories that change the story. Leaders tell compelling stories that change the story. Stories change us. Part of the reason our ancestors have worked so hard to keep us apart is that we might fall in love with people who don't look like us, and God forbid we miscegenate and mix up the races. Well, exactly. When we get with people who are different than us, they tell us stories, we find common ground, our stories are changed. And then we are changed. Stories grow empathy. Stories reduce the racial empathy gap. Stories build commonality. Stories stop us from saying things like, I don't see race. Please see my race. Please see me. I am a particular black woman a particular African-American black woman with dreadlocks, who's chocolatey brown, who has a life. I want to be seen for me. When I was in high school, and my friend Bobby Manning and I sat around telling each other, you know, she'd say, some of the black kids in our class, I can't understand them, but I I understand you. And when I was in high school, that felt like a compliment. (laughs) When I was in high school, it felt like a compliment to her that I didn't see her color. No, we are particular, we are not alike, we are different, and we are equal. And our stories help us to be particular and also to help us find the space of love, the space of connection, the space of commonality. So I want to invite you now um, to stop a second and find one other person to talk to. We're going to do a little safe storytelling to practice telling stories. Would you just quickly get a person? Not three people. Just get a person. Raise your hand if you don't have a person because Anurag wants a person. Tell me when you're ready. Show me that you're ready by raising your hand. You've got a person? If you don't have a person, stand up. Okay, Anurag will be my person. Do you, do you need a person? He needs a person. That's your person, Anurag. Come on up here, bud. Can you come up? Okay. Okay. In these conversations about race, it's really pretty easy to get into the victim and the victimizer. I'm, I'm not trying to do that. We all live in this culture, and we've all been impacted. So what I'd like you to do in this sto- short storytelling is to talk about one of, the, one of two things. You, you decide. Here is the first time I can remember when I was othered. Because of the way I look. Here's the first time I can remember when I was othered because of the way I look, or here's the first time I can remember othering someone because of the way they look. Okay, and we've had some wonderful advice from like Lynn Twist and um, how to tell us how to do the shearing. So you're going to make space for each other. You're going to just hold each other with with sort of good eye contact and body language and let that person talk. And we're gonna do three minutes and then three minutes, okay, and and Anurag is gonna, well, he's talking, so I'll let you know, can I use your thing? Okay, because you're gonna share with this guy. I'm gonna give you the three minute moment and you'll know it's time to switch, okay? You decide which one. Here's the first time you remember being othered. Yeah, here's the first time I remember othering, all right? Ready? Okay, go. How was that for you? Yeah? Okay. So how many of you in the room are leaders? How many in the room are leaders? Okay, cool. (laughs) So leaders tell compelling stories that change the story. And leaders are responsible to cast a vision for the preferred reality. I don't believe in leaders going off on the mountaintop by themselves to see if something will speak to them. Uh, but, but I think that leaders cast visions inside their communities. I think the community wants that from us, needs that from us. Uh, Michael Ray talked so eloquently about the importance of community organizing, those one-to-ones and that lead to house group conversations, but lead to the sort of uprising of the shared thing. And I really think that's critical. But I also think that sometimes we have to be ahead of a curve. And leaders being ahead of the curve is sometimes a lonely thing, but I think it's a critical thing. That's what makes us leaders. So our commitment to a vision of a preferred reality, which for me, I would call a future freed of racism. A future freed of racism. Not a future where, you know, in 2040, we're all just about demographically the same amount of folk. South Africa testifies to the fact that we could be all black and still have a white majority rule and oppressing folks. We could be all Chinese and still have a little minority of folks oppressing folks. So those demographic members isn't gonna get it. What's gonna get it is a critical mass of us saying, not on my watch. A critical mass of us saying, oh, no, 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 I can see a pathway to a future freed of racism. Psychologist Robert Carter says that race is still the salient issue in America. And when I'm doing a talk on that, people want to tell me, no, no, I think it's class. I go, no, it's race. (laughs) No, 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 I think it's immigration. Well, that's about race. Uh, no, I think it's about education. Well, well that's about race. <laughs> Jackie, no, 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 it's really important that we talk about economic empowerment. That's about race, that's about wealth, and that's about race. But I think we need to talk about healthcare. <laughs> that's about race. Let's not forget to talk about gender and sexual orientation, race. A future freed of racism. That's my vision. How about you? Can you see it? Can you imagine our children being judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin? Can you imagine? Can you see it? Jews and Gentiles, black folks and white folks, Latinos and Asians, Native Americans and Pacific Islanders, all of us singing free at last free at last, thank God almighty, we're free at last. I want you to just take a moment, I'm on page you know, six and seven, but I want you to take a moment and think now about your personal context. This'll be a personal moment and then we'll do another group share. What's the title of the current chapter in your context? If we're on the way to a future free of racism, you all agree that's a, snaps, right? That's a good vision. What's the title of the current chapter in your context around race? For example, we're not talking about it, but we need to. Like a phrase, okay? Or we're marching up to freedom land, okay? Whatever. You're writing a book, your, your, your context is an ongoing narrative, what's the title of the current chapter? And then, what's the title of the next chapter to get us to that future, okay? Just take a minute and write that for yourself. Current chapter, the next chapter, in order to get us there. We will be a place that works for the end of racism in America. That's how clearly we have to articulate the vision. But we can't do it by ourselves. We need to have a community of people working with us, around us, surrounding us, who share the vision. And I think that happens through storytelling as well. So if we think about the way we can create a community that's on the way to freedom land, I believe that that happens by using some structured conversations to develop community. page 8 page 9 there's some exercises there to get started and we just did that one about the current chapter and the next chapter but some other things that we can do to create community sometimes it's easier to help our people to stand back from their own text the congregation as a context as a text are you with me on that you know we can say you know guys we 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 have work to do or we could watch a movie like crash and let the movie show the bumping into each other around the issues of race and class and gender, and then put together some conversations about that film so that people are convicted and convinced without having to feel self-conscious. Does that make sense to you? Um, Crash, The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison's amazing novel about a girl who hated herself so much that she wanted to have blue eyes. Alice Walker's The Color Purple still lives uh, as a really important text. Talk a little bit about resources you've maybe used in your context to create community around this anti-racism work. I'm happy to repeat what you say. Can you share some things you've done? Yes. Race, the Power of an Illusion, an amazing PBS uh, resource that is still available online. Race, the power of an illusion. A PBS product. Awesome. I just want to affirm what you said about Crash. Um, I was a part of a leadership group in our city, and we
0: had a thank you. We had a, um, a, a leadership it's Leadership Greensboro, the city that I'm a part of, and so it was a group of leaders from the, the community that came together, and we were diverse in a lot of different ways, yeah. and that was a great way for us to get into some deep conversation quickly.
1: Drops you right in, because it's art, and the director's edition This got another piece with the actors talking about race. Buy it, use it, amazing. You can do episodes. What else, a couple of more ideas?
0: We showed uh, Traces of the Trade, story Wonderful. from the deep
1: north at our church. Wonderful, traces of the trade, stories from the deep north, excellent. Right here.
0: Uh, for a children's religious education, we use the story Mira and the Big Story, which is about good. two different villages and
1: the story that one tells about the others. Fantastic, how changes. wonderful, great. One more, uh, two, okay, three more, okay. Uh, the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Amazing, how many of you have read that book? The New Jim Crow, oh good, um, amazing. That's a great book. Um, They were here and here, okay? Uh, So, um, uh, multicultural, uh, cross-racial community of faith, um, having adult education panels where uh, people of different racial groups, whether it's Asian or um, African American, Give it. Uh, share their experience of what it is to be. So, what it is to be an African American woman. And have a group of African American women speak to that, um, and the different genders and racial groups speak to that. Awesome, Andrea. Thank you. One more, Stephen.
0: Uh, our congregation, uh, for three years now, has done a month-long, uh, soulful journeys series, um, where we have made documentaries about the history of African-American music in, uh, in America and how that has intersected with, uh, the, the, with the untold story of American history. Um, we devote the month of February to that uh, uh, every year, and that creates some amazing conversations among the uh, congregants.
1: Awesome. That's amazing. PBS is a rock star with resources in terms of things that you can show and get people to talk about, museums, art exhibits music. We can't be the multicultural, multiracial congregation of humanity on the way to a future freed of racism without getting outside of our lane. We've got to get outside of our lane. We've got to listen to music that we would never buy and try to understand the people that we're trying to attract into our, into relationship with us. I love the conversation we had the other day about how this isn't about just getting some others in the pew. This is about creating a human family of community organizers who are all heading toward freedom together. And we've got to learn other cultural languages. Um, And yes, I do mean Spanish. We're going to be behind in dos minutos más if we don't know how to speak Spanish. Yes, I mean Mandarin, but I also mean the language the food, the culture, the music, the dance, the jazz, the art forms of the folks around us so that we're conversant in it and so that we close the empathy gap because we know a bit more about what drives them and makes them tick. Finally, for today, so much I could say, but I want to talk about the, the critical, important issue of creating a safe container for the work that we're doing. And we've already bumped into a little bit of this here. I, I've loved seeing it in action, but like watching Irshad and Bob talk, I was like, all right then. Let's go there, different cultures, you know? Um, I'm sure that was happening with Earshad and I was talking, but I just couldn't see it, because I was in it. But the, but the truth of the matter is, having conversations about race, and diversity, and um, inclusion, and welcoming, means defining our terms, means getting our language straight, means asking someone, how how shall I call you? Letting people name themselves, creating space for self-definition. It really is about careful communication. We can't be so afraid to talk to each other that we stay apart. We have to know that coming together is going to occasionally cause hurt feelings. We're going to be occasionally offended. We're definitely going to step on some toes, so we got to have lots of apologies ready to come out, sincere apologies. My bad heals a great number of wounds. But I think we have to be intentional about how we're going to use the way communication can create a safe space. So I do want to take a second to just look on page 11 in the booklet about tips for careful communication, and then we're going to do some Q&A. Um, we rewrote this book, so if you think you have this book, you, you don't, actually. <laughs> it's a new book that we rewrote for you with tear-out pages or pages you can copy, and all of this is stuff that you can use b- but uh, without... Like, just use it, okay? If it's helpful, please use it. But let's just take a look uh, on page 11, walk through this just a little bit together. I think I want to talk radical listening. You know, when we're anxious, when we're nervous, when we're do- in a new situation, when we feel like the stakes are high, we can start formulating our next thought and, you know, ah, okay, okay, ah, well, as soon as he shuts up, I'm gonna. Well, you're not listening then. You're just, you're just not. It's a good... Everybody has done that at least once in their life. Just kind of take, make a discipline of, I'm going to count to five before I say my thought. You know, let yourself take in what someone said, radical listening. Um, Don't presume you know what they're saying. Repeat for clarity. You know, we laugh at this, those of us who went to seminary, that Rogerian reflection thing. What I hear you saying is, actually, that really works. Can Can I say that back to you, just make sure I have it? Um, I hear you. I got that. Okay, thanks. That's good. That's good. It helps us to build, um, to build shared understanding. Stay present rather than rehearsing the point you're going to make. Presence is such a gift. Uh, when I was a younger pastor, I had felt like I had to fly around the sanctuary to make sure I touched base with everybody. And I was then never fully present for anybody. Mm-hmm. And what I do now is I plant myself at that door, whether it's cold or hot, And when anyone comes by me, I can attend to that person. And I'm shocked at how willing people are to wait to get the same attention. What a gift it is to give someone who's other than us our full attention. Amen? Amen. Speak for yourself from your own point of view. I hate to be in a room where someone's trying to ask me to speak for all the black women with dreadlocks. Or all the black women who went to Princeton. Or just all the black people. It's just too much. Speak for you and invite other people to do the same thing. Let's not, we don't have to represent. That's a lot of pressure, right? Let's not represent. Um, use I statements as much as possible. Gosh, it's so vulnerable to say I. I am sad. I'm frightened. When you, when this, when, when, when we are in a situation like this, I find myself feeling timid and I, and I just wanna see if we can do it differently, you know? create. Vulnerable spaces by being vulnerable. Create vulnerable spaces by being vulnerable. Um, Good eye contact, facial clues, body language that signal your willingness to hear. We learned in CPE about mirroring the person we're talking to. And that can feel weird and freaky and odd, but actually it works. If they sit up on the edge of the chair and you sit up on the edge of the chair, if they lean back and you lean back, it really does sort of... Unconsciously signal, I see you, in that way that the spirit of Mbutu says. I see you, you exist. I think I skipped one. Leave space for other people to speak. I love what Eric Law does about this whole thing of invitation. Do you guys know that, this work he's done? You know, call on the quiet one. You know, Rob, we haven't heard from you. Could could you please speak um, to create a safe space for everyone to be? Develop your border sensibility. And I said that already, but I just want to say it again. We We not... We're not borderline people, I don't think so. (laughs) But we do have to be people on the border. Um, Virgilio Elizondo and many Latino, Latina scholars are talking about the work on the border. On the border, we become mestizo. On the border, we become una tres raza, they say, raza, a third race, another thing, something both and. Something that's not just black or not just Indian or not just white. And you know, that means we lose something. We lose purity. But it means we gain something. We gain humanity. Cultivate a relationship with a friend on the border. Break bread together, coach one another, hold one another accountable. I'm going to be your friend. I was talking to a couple of my colleagues here, white men who are doing what I do. Can we be partners? Can we coach each other? Can we mentor each other? Can we be together a community that is learning? And finally, learn another cultural language. Again, I'm repeating myself there, but I work with a 75-year-old man to plan worship every week who is an opera director. We don't come from the same place at all. But he said, Jonathan, Jackie and I both have an encyclopedic hymnody. Wow. But not the same stuff. So we are working together across our difference to do something beautiful, okay? I want to leave you with with this and then invite you to some Q&A with me and Anurag. Um, I want to work in a world where you and I don't have to have this meeting in a seminar. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it again. I'm gonna. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to live and work in a world where we are not post-racial, where we are human, steeped fully in our particular ethnicities, And genders and gender performance and sexual orientation and quirks and fabulousness because that's what makes it fun. But I don't want any other children to be called the N-word. I don't want any more men called suspicious. I don't want any more stop and frisk. I don't want white people to be excluded from the movement because they're white. We got to get over this stuff. Will you work with me? Thanks, thank you.